When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I started twerking last night. Dunno, just did. Was listening to the Radio Wolfgang and the urge just took me to twerk. No, I was terrible, obviously. Come on. You could get caught in the cold, Perhaps you know the story of the investigator who took doses of anesthetic and equipped himself with pencil and paper to record at the moment of awakening whatever revelation might have been given to him. And there upon the paper was the following immensely profound observation. Everything in this universe is the smell of burnt almonds. In 18th century France, Jean-Baptiste Grenouille was born with a talent that made him unique among mankind. My nose knows all the smells in the world. It's the best nose in Paris. You don't interrupt me when I'm speaking. You are both impertinent and insolent. Even I don't know every scent. This is number one perfume. For men or women, the starting price per ounce is $2,600. That makes this the most expensive. There were a thousand smells in his clothes. The smell of sand, stone, moss, even the smell of the sausage he'd eaten weeks ago. Only one smell was not there. His own. So the primary goal of olfaction is to color the background of our existence and give us information about the meaning and the emotional context and the desirability or not of things in our environment. Dogs, cats, all creatures are very conscious of smell, find their way by it. They learn a vocabulary, a smell vocabulary that most of us don't have. They, of course, focus on communicating smell identity. If you could measure the vibrations of the molecule, it would be a huge evolutionary advantage because you'd be doing what chemists uh, used to do so from the 20s until about the 70s uh, to identify unknowns. I think for the most part, most olfactory scientists now don't, don't believe that this is a uh, legitimate theory any longer, at least not doesn't hold enough explanatory power to remain serious about it. There's a whole kind of chemical warfare and seduction going on between males and females and between males as they compete for mates. Teach me how to capture the smell of all things. Teach me how to do that accent. <laughs> but actually, don't. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. This is the podcast, clearly, I mean, you know it's a podcast, uh, where we examine a work of fiction uh, and uh, try and work out if the science within it is of interest or sort of uh, genuine or a load of old nonsense. That's basically it, isn't it, Michael? I think that is it, yeah. Dr. Michael Brooks is here. Hello. And this episode, we're looking at the book and film Perfume. Which I was, I have to say, I was slightly sceptical about. <laughs> I'd never read the book or, or watched the film, and I thought it sounded a bit... You thought it sounded a bit girly, didn't you? Not, no, not even girly. I just thought, I mean, how much science is there in, in smelling? So much. And that so is much. what I came to realise. Oh, ye of little faith. Yeah, very ignorant preconception that I was holding. Have you read the book? I've not read the book, no. Have you watched the film? Yes, I have. Twice now, actually. I've forgotten that I'd already watched it. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> well, <laughs> about halfway through, I thought, eh, I've definitely seen this before. Oh, I had something about halfway through as well. So I watched the first half and then I thought, 
Yeah, I mean, I get the idea. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, essentially, uh, Ben Whishaw, who's doing that um, extraordinary accent throughout, his character, who is called... Jean-Baptiste Grenouille. Exactly what I was about to say. So he is born in a fish market and his mum thinks that he's dead and throws him onto a pile of fish. I mean, it's a really grotesque opening and uh, and he gets sent off to an orphanage. But the main thing is he has this incredible sort of preternatural ability to smell and so his picture of the world is is almost entirely olfactory. And he then becomes obsessed with capturing scent specifically capturing the scent of this this one girl that he <laughs> to be fair kills and and he's really keen to try and uh, capture the scent and he starts working for dustin hoffman a famed perfumer yeah and hoffman sort of training him how to do it and the whole thing is about how he's trying to create the perfect scent i think hoffman tells him yeah. about this amazing egyptian scent that made the whole world sort of stop and take notice when they yeah. smelt it for a moment and he becomes obsessed by wanting to capture that mm-hmm and thinks that he'll find it on the bodies of various women yeah, who seem quite unwilling to give up their own scent. And so he turns into a psychopathic serial killer. Yeah, yeah. I think there's ways of approaching um, getting the scent that may have proved more fruitful. And, and, you know, I would, I think this is a reasonable statement. I think he took things a bit too far. <laughs> well, you know, art will do that to you. Yes. So the, the, the sort of, the irony for me of all of this is, of course, I have an incredibly poor sense of smell. <laughs> Rick is virtually anosmic. I am I am virtually anosmic. Uh, when I was about 14, I deeply inhaled through my nose lab-strength ammonia. Why? Because I had a cold, uh, which in fact is did clear up. <laughs> and, uh, Never had and a cold the, since. Uh, no, and the, um, my chemistry teacher was banging on about ammonium smelling salts and I wasn't really listening but I got the ammonia bit <laughs> so I was like oh great there's some right there I'll just I'll clear this up in a jiffy and it burnt uh, like I mean I've never felt pain like it and since then I think what, what this happened, is one of my favorite stories yeah, yeah I know I just stripped away or, or destroyed most of the um, the olfactory cells yeah. and the old schnoz. Which are actually meant to regenerate themselves throughout well, your it, life. I, I think that they that they have regenerated because there was a point where I really couldn't smell very, like, it was really hard for me to smell. And now it's more that if I'm wandering around, I don't get ambient smells, but if someone says to me, oh, smell that, then I, then I sniff, then I will be able to smell it. To be clear, I'm not anosmic. Yeah, that's pretty horrific. Quite a fundamentally uh, yeah. different thing. We'll come back to Anosmia a bit later on. Uh, For anyone who's listening who hasn't listened before, where have you been, you madman or madwoman? We always ask three questions on this show. And the first question, I think, for this episode will be, how do we smell? Quite basic, but quite crucial. Someone who knows all about this is neurobiologist Professor Stuart Feierstein from Columbia University in New York. We're able to detect a large number and a great diversity of chemicals in the environment that we call odors. Not every chemical acts as an odor, but many hundreds of thousands apparently do. And we do that using a special set of cells, which are really neurons, that is brain cells, that have been uh, somehow or another parked or extended out into the nasal cavity, the very, very upper reaches of our nasal cavities where specialized sensory neurons or brain cells have receptors on them. These receptors act in a kind of a lock and key fashion. They're like the lock and the odor molecules are like the key. And if they match up properly, then that odor will have activated that receptor, which turns that lock and key interaction into a change in the electrical properties of this neuron. And that change in the electrical properties of the neuron is what's communicated to the next part of the brain, to higher centers in the brain. Through what turns out to be a relatively short pathway for sensory systems, from the olfactory sensory neurons, the ones in your nose that interact directly with the odor, the electrical signal goes to an area of the brain called the olfactory bulb where these cells make connections with the next set of cells in line, which happen to be called mitral cells. They then project to an area of the cortex, which is the highest level of brain processing we have. 
So it's basically a set of relatively simple steps. We begin with the binding uh, of an odor molecule to its receptor, that's the lock and key, a change in voltage or electrical property of the sensory neuron, and that's transmitted to higher centers of the brain. The stairwell stank of mouldering wood and rat droppings, the kitchens of spoiled cabbage and mutton fat. The unaired parlors stank of stale dust, the bedrooms of greasy sheets, damp feather beds, and the pungently sweet aroma of chamber pots. People stank of sweat and unwashed clothes. From their mouths came the stench of rotting teeth. From their bellies, that of onions, and from their bodies came the stench of rancid cheese and sour milk and tumorous disease. The shape theory of olfaction, to expand a bit on this lock and key idea, goes back, I mean, I don't really know the entire history of it, but I would say at least into the early 1900s, because it developed along with ideas about pharmacology in general, because we know this is the way many brain cells detect neurotransmitters or hormones or drugs or all sorts of chemicals in their environment. And to do that, they use a certain kind of a protein receptor, the unfortunately complicated sounding name G-protein coupled receptor, or GPCR for short. And olfactory receptors work much like they do. In fact, they're a member of that family by genetic relations. And so in the same way, we know that acetylcholine receptors or serotonin receptors, the way they recognize and bind serotonin or acetylcholine is primarily by the recognition of their shape, a sort of a fit into the receptor pocket. And so that's been one, one strong theory in olfaction is that it works the same way is Professor Stewart getting paid per mention of lock and key? <laughs> well, lock and key, if you're an olfaction researcher, is all you've got, effectively. Mm. You know, this is the thing that they say, this is how smell works. Although, you know, it's got to be more complicated than that. But the basic idea is that a molecule that smells has a particular shape, and that particular shape will fit into a particular receptor in your nose. And then when it locks in, when it you know, slides in, like a key sliding into a lock, that sort of triggers the brain to say, oh, this is the molecule that you are now smelling. So, but then does that mean that because there are so many different smells and smell molecules and we're able to distinguish between, I'm guessing, hundreds of thousands? This is part of the problem is that actually we have you know, a few hundred receptors, different locks effectively. There quite possibly are anywhere between 10,000 and a trillion, the figures I've seen, different keys going in there and not all of them will fit you know, precisely. precisely. So is it then a little bit similar to the way that we have, was it, rods and cones and stuff in, yeah. in our eyes? And we can only see how many colors? Three, three colors, three colors red, yeah. red, green, and blue. And yeah. yet we're able to see a full spectrum of colors because it's the way that they combine. Yeah, exactly. So, so you, you've got lots of different molecules, you know, can hit those receptors at the same time. And so you get this kind of combination just as we get, you know, different colors from combinations right. of the primary colors. But I mean, you know, nobody's really sort of worked out the details of this. I mean, it's still, it still pretty doesn't unknown. quite account for the fact that, you know, novelty because i can smell something that i've never smelt before can i yeah i i, I mean I'm, I'm, i mean i can't but mo- most people <laughs> most, yeah most people can, most people yeah. would not have yeah. a problem with it in the same way that you don't have a problem seeing something you haven't seen before yeah you don't have a problem but then if if it is this lock and key thing then that novel molecule it's key where is it going yeah, because it do, presumably doesn't have a a, a lock. That well, it fits I mean, even exactly. if it triggers something, then then it comes down to what your brain recognizes and what it doesn't. I guess. Yeah. So if you talk to olfaction researchers, they will admit, possibly after a, a slight pause, that shape theory is good, but it's not the whole story. And there are some other theories out there. Yeah, there's another one that comes from Dr. Luca Turin, a biophysicist from the Alexander Fleming Biomedical Sciences Research Center. I mean, come up with an acronym, guys, uh, which is in Athens. <laughs> he started by telling us his problems with the shape theory of olfaction. So there, there are really two kinds of problems with shape theory. One is that it doesn't work in a practical sense since um, fragrance companies essentially discover new smells by um, 
random, by trial and error, mostly error. So that tells you you don't have a theory. That's uh, objection number one. Objection number two is slightly more subtle, but I think actually more telling. The, the fact is that we know, chemists know, and everybody who's looked at this knows, that we can smell um, functional groups, meaning small parts of molecules that determine their chemistry. So, for example, if a molecule has a CN, C triple bond N, that's a nitrile group, it will smell of nitrile, regardless of what the rest of the molecule is. And similarly, and that's the best known, if it has SH, it'll smell of rotten eggs, regardless of what the rest of the molecule is. It'll smell of something else as well, but it'll smell of rotten eggs, definitely. Now, this is so well-known that we've sort of forgotten how remarkable it is because the remarkable part is this. How do you know that an SH group is there or a CN group by molecular recognition? Each of those groups can make only one, at most, hydrogen bond to whatever receptor they're binding to. How does the receptor know that the hydrogen bond is being made by one functional group rather than another? And that's the, that's the biggest ob objection, in my opinion, to a shape theory. So vibrational theory addresses this particular point of functional groups head on. If you look back to the days before um, NMR machines, nuclear magnetic resonance machines, that allow you to determine the structure of a molecule, the way people used to do it is by infrared spectroscopy, so by the vibrations of the molecules. And the reason they used to do that is because typically functional groups all have very distinctive vibrational frequencies. In the old days, if you had an unknown molecule, the first thing you would do is to see if it had a recognizable functional group. And that told you what its chemistry was, really, basically, what it was going to do in the reactions. And also, you could identify it if you compared it to a known spectrum. So, to me, it makes sense that the nose should be able to do that. Wonderful, he murmured, sniffing greedily. It has a, a cheerful character. It's, it's charming. It's like a melody. Puts you in a good mood at once. He made a dive for his desk, grabbing paper, ink, and a fresh handkerchief, laid it all out properly, and began his analysis. The, the mechanism is actually um, really quite simple. And in fact, it was discovered by two chemists, the Ford Motor Company uh, labs. It goes something like this. Imagine you have an electron coming up against a gap, and it can cross it by, by a quantum mechanical phenomenon called tunneling. It basically it just sort of jumps across the gap, okay? Now, it can do that if on the other side of the gap there is a place for the electron to land, so an, a, an empty spot waiting for an electron to come. Now, imagine the empty spot, instead of being on the same energy level as the incoming electron, is slightly below. Then in order for the electron to jump, it has to do two things. It has to go across and lose some energy. Otherwise, it won't be able to go across. Now, if you put in the gap a molecule that can soak up that amount of energy in the form of a vibration, then the electron will tunnel through. If there's nothing in the gap to soak up that energy, then the electron does not tunnel through. So in essence, what you've done is you've made a switch that turns on only when A, a molecule is present, and B, that molecule has a vibration that corresponds to that energy jump. What is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> is my nose a series of quantum switches? This is one of the, the ideas behind quantum biology is that actually we have sort of these evolutionarily developed mechanisms that actually have roots in, in quantum physics. So in the nose, the idea is that it's the quantum vibrations of the molecules, which can only take on certain amounts of energy. They are the means by which the nose distinguishes between molecules. So, so you get a certain vibrational energy, and there's a kind of quantum element to the receptor mm. where it will only basically you know, bind to that receptor if it has the right vibrational frequency. And then uh, in order to do that, it has to do something called quantum tunneling, where it actually goes across a short gap, which kind of you know, loses a certain amount of energy doing it. But only a certain molecule can make that jump effectively. Uh, so you're in a position where you're talking about having a quantum mechanism that triggers something in the brain. 
but people say it's overkill. I mean, it's, you know, is it really that that complex, that complex, mm. and that sensitive? So, so the the problem with it is that actually you can design experiments where you say, oh, only a certain frequency of vibration will sort of be detectable. And you can do this with fruit flies. And Luca Turin did this with fruit flies. And it seemed to work, but nobody could replicate his experiments. So it only really worked the once. So the idea was that the fruit flies could distinguish between two different smells, which would have two different vibrational frequencies, but in a lock and key thing would look exactly the same. So Turin's idea is a good one. It's interesting, but I still think you'd have to classify it as a fringe theory. And here's Professor Stewart again. I think for the most part, most olfactory scientists now don't don't believe that this is a legitimate theory any longer, at least not doesn't hold enough explanatory power to remain serious about it. There have been several tests of the vibrational theory that have not held up really. So one way you can test this is by using what's called heavy water H3O instead of H2O, which has most of the same properties of water, but would give molecules a different vibrational level. And most people cannot discriminate between odor molecules made from H2O or H3O, essentially. Now, I must say, in, in a sort of mild defense of it, I don't think the vibrational theory is necessarily completely wrong. Uh, the problem with it is that it's been offered as a kind of a total and complete alternative to the shape theory. Whereas I think it could be a part of the shape theory because I think molecular vibration may be one of a number of chemical properties that are used in some cases by certain receptors in order to discriminate two molecules. Yeah, that seems kind of obvious to me, actually, from listening to both the shape theory and then what uh, Professor Luke or Dr. Luca, uh, what Dr. <laughs> Luca was saying, um, because they, they feel like they can kind of work together. Yeah. Can't they? There must be a whole sort of raft of things. And maybe there's something else we haven't even thought of yet. But there's no reason why you couldn't have lock and key and vibration. You know, whatever it takes, evolution will use it, won't it? The only thing that kind of strikes me is it's quite sort of over-engineered, isn't it? I think there might be a, a like a simpler way of doing it. Well, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 eyes aren't, <laughs> yeah. the, the eyes aren't relying on as many sort of different mechanisms, are they? It's relatively straightforward. We, we are relatively straightforward. But then if you think about life evolved in a sort of chemical environment, so chemical sensing was probably far more important than visual sensing. Mm. Yeah, okay, so that's good because I guess our answer <laughs> so far with uh, uh, how do we smell is well, you know, it's complicated, guys. There's a few things going on. But what you're talking about, the fact that it's so fundamental, like the ability to detect your kind of chemical environment and, and use the chemicals or evade the chemicals or whatever it is, that's such a fundamental thing to life. That Our second question has to be, why do we smell and how does smell affect us? And that is something that this guy knows all about. Every animal uses smell for a variety of functions. They use it to find food, to find a mate, to find shelter, to beware of predators. So it's absolutely fundamental to animals interacting with each other and with the environment. I'm Professor Matthew Cobb of the University of Manchester. In general, we say that uh, olfaction, that is the chemical detection at a, at a distance, is the oldest of the senses. So the earliest bacteria, the first life forms, will have been having to move their way up and down gradients, either of nutrients or of uh, particular compounds in the sea. So in that sense, it goes way, way back to the origin of life. One of the problems in science is to find the right thing to study to answer the question you're interested in. Clearly, if you're interested in perception of smell, then humans are the way to go because the subject can tell the experimenter what they thought about a particular smell. I'm interested in how that very initial part of processing takes place, how smells are processed by the very first stage of the nervous system, these receptor molecules. And for that, the best bet is to study something that you can genetically manipulate and ideally something that isn't too distressing to work on and people don't mind you working on and for all those reasons I chose the maggot. 
Now, these aren't fishing maggots, you know, large ones that you go fishing with. These are the maggots of Drosophila, tiny little vinegar fly that scientists have been using for over a century now, and they use to help work out the laws of genetics. Humans have got four million smell cells. A maggot has just 21. And I can make a maggot with just one functioning smell cell in its nose. And so we, with a great deal of skill, because these things are very, very small, we can record from that cell and work out exactly what is being received by the brain, knowing that despite all the differences between us and maggots and flies, the basic way that the brain is wired up to do the smelling is essentially the same. So in principle, these results can be applied to other organisms. One of the main reasons to be interested in, in maggots and study their olfaction is that they are very boring animals. You may remember from the hungry caterpillar that all the hungry caterpillar wants to do is eat, and that's basically all a maggot wants to do. It'll just move in one direction. If it likes a smell, it'll go towards it. If it doesn't, it'll move away from it. So you can get very simple measures of what they think about smells, and you can record, as I said, from there, these neurons. You can even manipulate the neurons. So recently, we've been trying to reconstruct the code what exactly the neuron is sending the brain by making maggots smell blue we sound surreal but in fact what we're doing is we turn the maggot smell cell into an eye because these are drosophila maggots we can fool around with their genetics so you can put into the smell cell a receptor which is now receptive to light we can flash a light onto the maggot's nose, and it will then move in a direction because it thinks it can smell something. But so that they're making them smell blue because it's just slightly easier for us to control the input signal. Yeah. And the reason that that works is because the pathway is still the olfactory one, right? This is the field called optogenetics. And the idea is really that you just get a cell to make proteins that are light sensitive. Mm -hmm. So you, you basically give it some algal DNA instructions so it makes these light sensitive proteins, which it wouldn't normally do, as part of its smell detection mechanism. So then you flash a bit of blue light at it and it's as if it smells a molecule. It just turns it on, you know, and it releases a charge. So it's triggered by light rather than being triggered by a molecule. So what Professor Matthew is saying in a massive housey is that he's creating maggots only have one of these smell receptors that he's now turning into a light receptor. Yeah. Uh, and then he's just observing what's being sent up to the old brain. Yeah. So you can watch, you know, a single neuron trigger. So you can work out what that neuron is supposed to do. Mm. So you shine blue light at it and it moves towards the blue light and it's like, oh, well, that's what it would do for food. So obviously it's like, you know, that's a smell neuron effectively. And you can do it with other things. So, so people have used optogenetics to do reinforcement behavior. So, so you shine a light on this thing and you make it do a certain thing. And then you can simultaneously shine a light on some of the reward neurons and light mm -hmm. up those circuits. And then it associates the two things together. So you can make things behave the way you want them to by just triggering light responses. And actually the, the maggot's motivation for moving towards the blue is because they think, oh, food. food. But as Professor Matthew points out, uh, when maggots get a bit older, they've also got other things on their mind, Michael. <laughs> oh, yeah. Babies and all that. That's not all you go out with girls for, is it? No, you're right. There isn't any special reason for taking a girl out. Most guys just like female company. I'm in the mood for love. So... I spent a lot of my time, before I started working on maggots, I spent a lot of my time uh, watching fruit flies f***ing or not f***ing. And so this courtship behaviour that precedes mating is largely chemically based, and so males are attracted to females. Pheromonal uh, sex communication in flies that I studied turned out to be even more interesting than we expected. We were analysing the compounds that are on the surface of the female, and they seem to attract males from the same species. This made perfect sense. And then with a colleague in France, Jean-Francois Ferver, about 15 years ago, he had a student who did a, a stupid experiment. Because these flies can be genetically manipulated, they were studying the genetic basis of these sex pheromones, and they were studying how you could feminize a male fly. So by introducing certain genes into certain parts of its body, you could make a male fly produce female pheromones. 
Reagan. And then the students said, well, what happens if I feminize a female? And Jean-Francois said, well, that's a stupid experiment. Don't do it. And the student, to his credit, did the experiment and we got a completely unexpected result. The females had virtually no pheromones on them. So all of this stuff that normally excites courtship wasn't there. So the question then came, well, what happens? What do the flies think about it? And we discovered two things. Firstly, that the same species courtship carried on pretty much as normal, suggesting that perhaps some very tiny compounds were involved that we hadn't been paying much attention to. And secondly, really interestingly, males from other species, which normally don't like those flies, were now intensely attracted to them. So what that suggested was that some of these pheromones have a dual role. They excite members of your own species and they say to members of other closely related species, you don't want to mate with me, you'll be wasting your time, we can't have fertile offspring. And we've also found that sometimes when inhibitory compounds are detected, then they're detected by the same receptors that detect bitter tastes. A woman can coax you. She can bait you. So the same receptor is able to detect quite a complicated hydrocarbon, which is inhibitory, but also to detect bitter tastes such as quinine. A woman has many tactics. Should you give her another one? Ambush perfume by Dana. So there's a whole kind of chemical warfare and seduction going on between males and females and between males as they compete for mates. Well, that's it for today, fellas. Let's get out to practice, huh? So does that mean then that these inhibitory pheromones will taste bitter? Yeah, literally. And so they're just like, taste. ah, no, no, not for me. No. Oh, oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? This kind of really weird partnership between taste and smell and sex and reproduction. Now, this idea of smell then is an important aspect of social bonding, both like romantic and non-romantic, is also something that's very important in another type of animal. Humans. So the primary goal of olfaction is to color the background of our existence and give us information about the meaning and the emotional context and the desirability or not of things in our environment. This is Rachel Hertz, an adjunct professor from Brown University and Boston University. She's also the author of Scent of Desire, Discovering Our Enigmatic Sense of Smell. My book, The Scent of Desire, I got the idea to write it because I wanted people to appreciate their sense of smell after having met this woman who was so devastated from losing her sense of smell. And she had discovered she could no longer be intimate with her husband. That relationship was falling apart. She had decided previously she thought she wanted to have children. Now she felt that she would be a terrible caregiver. Infants actually can recognize their own mother's odor from other women who have just given birth within an hour or so of interaction. And mothers can identify their own infants from other newborns with just a few minutes of interaction with them. Her sweat smelled as fresh as the sea breeze. The tallow of her hair as sweet as nut oil skin as apricot blossoms and the harmony of all these components yielded a perfume so rich so balanced so magical that every perfume that Grenouille had smelled until now every edifice of odors that he had so playfully created within himself seemed at once to be utterly meaningless a hundred thousand odors seemed worthless in the presence of this scent this one scent was the higher principle the pattern by which the others must be ordered. It was pure beauty.
Now, when it comes to sexual attraction, there is another feature which is very important for humans, and that has to do with our pure, raw body odor. And so body odor, and especially for women, and this is research I've also done, has shown that the scent of a man is in fact more important for a woman's sexual attraction to him than how he looks, the sound of his voice, how nice his skin is, and every social feature, except for how pleasant he is. Being pleasant is actually the number one thing. So you have to be nice enough for the woman to get close to you to see how you smell. But for men, unsurprisingly, vision, that is to say how she looks, is the most important feature. Neither of those preferences are shallow. It's based on biology and sort of evolutionary principles. And the simple story is that the goal for a man reproductively is to mate with as many reproductively available women as possible. And how does a man know if a woman is reproductively available? Well, there are key characteristics physically which signal this. Now for women, the evolutionary story is a little bit different with the biological story. In addition to the nine months of gestation, if an infant has to rely on a mother's breast milk for food, and she has to do that pretty much for the first year of its life, if she gets pregnant during that time, she'll stop lactating. So that infant won't get that nutrition. So it's at least another year of being out of commission. Now, in terms of being able to survive and thrive to have children of her own, the most important thing is that that child is healthy. And what determines one's health? Well, one's immune system. And the genes for the immune system, which are typically referred to as the major histocompatibility complex, or MHC, are an extremely complex set of genes. And they are so complex that actually no two people, unless they have an identical twin, has the exact same complement of MHC genes. And surprisingly enough, the external manifestation of those MHC genes is your body odor. So what this means is that no two people have the same body odor. And so women's reliance on their sense of smell is telling them some very important things when it comes to a mate. First of all, studies have shown that women who are so naturally cycling prefer the scent of men who are more dissimilar to them in terms of their MHC genes. And this is a good thing biologically because you don't want someone to match up in whatever you have from the point of view of your immune system. So a woman is best suited to find a mate whose MHC genes are more different from her in order to have a child that's going to be most potentially healthy, that won't have any recessive diseases, and who's maximally covered for numerous other possible diseases that your immune system and that other person's immune system has protection for. So that's pretty incredible then. My body odor is sending out coded messages to ladies about my immune system. And if my immune system is kind of different enough to theirs they're gonna be like it is on yeah uh, but i mean then they look at you obviously and they're like it's definitely on. <laughs> <laughs> if you're but, not nice they're not interested yeah but rachel was but saying yes. that that's it being nice and, and your body odor more important than all of the other stuff that you kind of assume Which might is be up there incredible isn't yeah it? if only i'd known that as a teenager i don't think it would have helped you can't change your smell no you you can't I guess that's, so I think that's, that's the problem. Ca- yeah, that is the problem. Problem with links, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it probably is just the wrong smell. Yeah, and masking your delicious uh, yeah. natural odor. Yeah, yeah. And that old spice and that brute. I don't think Lynx oh. Africa is making any girls <laughs> <laughs> sort of think, wow, what an incredible mate this is. <laughs> and my immune system is so excited. <laughs> yeah, isn't it amazing? And the idea is that you unconsciously choose someone who has a different immune system to you. You say that you're, you know, complementary. Which is pretty clever. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, evolution is damned clever. Yeah. And so this uh, MHC, these MHC genes, they're not called MHC genes in humans, are they? In humans, they're called uh, human leukocyte antigen, HLA. Uh, Major histocompatibility complex is a little bit more difficult to say. Yeah, well, you certainly made it sound difficult to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, and people have shown these kind of 
things by using uh, old sweaty t-shirts, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, they have. So this whole thing, interestingly, started out as an attempt to find organ donors and skin graft donors. Back in the 70s, some guy had an idea that you could use dogs to sniff out who might be compatible with a, a certain person so that you could do organ donation. So it was a way of sort of trying to beat that immune response, which ends up rejecting organs. In that case, you're looking for someone who's Smells who, who quite smells similar quite similar. You, so yeah. different to a mating. Yeah. So then they started doing this in the lab with mice, and then they discovered that mice preferred partners that had a very different immune system. And then it gradually moved to humans. And then they did this amazing experiment where they got a bunch of blokes to basically wear a T-shirt for a couple of days without using any sort of perfume, no links Africa allowed, mm. and then gave it to the ladies to smell, <laughs> to see what they made of it. And if you like the smell of it, you're probably going to like the person. Is it as explicit as that, though? Is it as explicit as I sniff it and I'm like, I like that smell? Or is it a bit more complicated and more indirect? Because that feels quite basic. Well, I think it all is quite basic. There's not that much that's complex about our sort of attraction to other people. I mean, this is supposedly the evolutionary purpose of kissing, is that you go in and you have a kind of route around and you smell and you taste... And your brain does some kind of unconscious processing about their immune system and thinks either that there will be a good match or this is not on at all. We're not going down this route. That's kind of what I mean. It feels like it's more likely to be an unconscious processing that your your brain is doing as opposed to a just like ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Love the smell. Yeah, I, I'm sure. But, but you know, if you talk to people, you'll find that smells are really, really important to them. There was a basic perfumatory theme to the odour of humanity. A rather simple one, incidentally. A sweaty, oily, sour, cheesy, quite richly repulsive basic theme that clung to all humans equally and above which each individual's aura hovered only as a small cloud of more refined particularity. Because our body odours, unless we have a twin, are unique... Yeah, as, as far as we know, yeah, that must mean that the idea in the, in in the book and in the film perfume of a perfect scent doesn't really make any sense because it's all going to be relative, isn't it? Like what I think is a yeah. perfect scent is not going to be the same as what you think is. The which perfect is scent. which is the great the genius behind it, isn't it? Is that everybody will agree on who's good looking, yeah, but actually people won't agree on who smells right and who smells good because everyone's immune system is radically different from everyone else's, which means there are multiple ways to partner everyone up where everyone's actually quite happy. Now, Professor Rachel was also saying that this all applies to women who are on natural cycles, i.e. not using contraceptive contraceptive pills. pills. What effect does that have then? So so the contraceptive pill will make your body effectively think that it's pregnant. It sort of gives out this false signal. And that changes everything. So when you do that, and then you do this sniff test, you actually end up preferring the smell that is most like your immune system. So when you're pregnant... Uh, your body craves kinship, close relations, family, and you're actually sort of wanting to surround yourself with people who are protective. And so you won't find that perfect sexual partner for reproduction because actually you're in a position where your body is not looking for that. So if you found your partner while you were on the pill, you may have been kidding yourself. Hate to say it, guys. Oh, dear. So hang on. So does that mean, I mean, purely hypothetical question here, guys, Uh, asking for a friend. So if you have met your wife and she's on the pill and then she comes off the pill, do you think about having a family? Is she going to stop fancying you? No. Give it to me straight, Michael. (laughs) Not necessarily, because by that time, you've gone beyond these basic kind of primal responses. It's not going to help. No, I, I won't lie to you. But you have built all kinds of other relationships that she thrives on and loves. What do you mean you have? This is <laughs> hypothetical. Mean, your friend has. Right, and and it, it's all, it's all going to be fine, I'm sure. Mm, I'm just shifting uncomfortably in my seat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get stuck into question three then. Obviously, a very big part of the film is the fact that Jean-Baptiste is a kind of super smeller. And obviously, there are people like me who are bad smellers. But can it go the other way? Like, can do, do you have super smellers in, in real life? And that's something we put to Professor Tim Jacob of Cardiff University. 
The idea that so there are some individuals who are super smellers is actually a misconception. I think there are two fundamental misconceptions in the book Perfume, and this is the first of them. The system works by uh, having a set of receptors, and we have you know, a fixed number of receptors. It may vary somewhat between individuals, but by and large, we all have the same number, except, of course, those who are anosmic or hypoosmic, those who have no sense of smell or reduced sense of smell. Of course, that, that is a, a very different situation. But there, there is no mechanism whereby people can become super smellers or, or hyper smellers. Pregnancy sometimes results in distortions of smell and taste, and some mothers report becoming hypersensitive to certain compounds, foods, chemicals. And several people have studied this. And in fact, I, I was quite interested in studying it myself. Again, for the same reasons, I'm, I'm really interested in hypersensitivity. But there's no consistent pattern here. Some women become hypersensitive, others don't. Those that are hypersensitive are hypersensitive to certain things and not others and, and different from other people. So it's extremely idiosyncratic and it's probably hormonal. And certainly hormones do uh, have, have an impact across the menstrual cycle. Women are more sensitive uh, at ovulation uh, when uh, hormones uh, are at their peak. So, you know, there are ways in which hormones can modulate the sense of smell. How do they do this? Well, it's not exactly clear, I think, but, but the suggestion is that it uh, alters the amount of brain computing power that's uh, dedicated to analysing the information rather than there being a sort of increase in the number of receptors. The result? fragrances never known before. Think of it, a selection of more than 6,000 elements, natural and man-made. Yet the most important factor, perhaps, is the perfumer, the vital human element so important to all creative activity. The question of whether normal people can enhance their sense of smell um, is an interesting one. Um, I mean, for example, do perfumers have a heightened sense of smell? And, and the answer is no, <laughs> they don't. He is known as the nose, and he must be able to distinguish between thousands of scents. Using his imagination, his very special flair, he works with this palette of fragrance elements from garden, meadow, sea, and science to create a masterpiece. But what they do is they learn a vocabulary, a smell vocabulary that most of us don't have. They, of course, focus on, uh, on communicating smell identity, identification and difference. That's very important to them to be able to uh, relay what they've learned or what they've done to someone else. And so they're using another part of the brain. They're using the sort of verbal, linguistic part of the brain. So it's like you've got a triangulation, a double fix on a smell. You've got the actual smell itself and the feelings and, and memories that, that evokes, but also you've got the, the verbal memory of the, or the linguistic part of the brain that's contributing and helps you sort of identify, analyse, recognise the smell. So that's what they do, and that's how their abilities are superior to the rest of us. But if you look, as I do, with um, electrodes on evoke potentials, they're, they're no better than anyone else. Then the perfumer sees. Yes, see is the professional term for smelling. He sees the harmonic combination of elements. And thus, a great fragrance is born. Those labels and what you're saying about sort of perfumers, all they're really doing is they're just recruiting more parts of the brain to label so that they have a kind of richer label. Yeah. So you've got a linguistic label as well as your kind of smell label. And therefore, they can talk about it in a, in a kind of... And make everyone else frankly, feel slightly small. flouncier way. Yeah. yeah. But they are no better at smelling than you. They're just kind of, they can express it better. And next time I meet somebody who does that, I'm going to say, you are no better at smelling than I am. You just know how to talk about it. Yeah. Get out of my face. And then, and then do the slow clap. Oh, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> you can talk about smells. <laughs> oh, hints of lemon, you say. Well done. Well done, Calvin Klein. He, Jean-Baptiste Grenouille, born with no odour of his own on the most stinking spot in the world amid garbage, dung and putrefaction raised without love 
with no warmth of a human soul, surviving solely on impudence and the power of loathing. Small, hunchback, lame, ugly, shunned, an abomination within and without. He had managed to make the world admire him. To hell with admire! He was, in very truth, his own god, and a more splendid god than the god that stank of incense and was quartered in clutches. So I think, unusually for science-ish, we've got some relatively solid answers on our three questions. So first question was, how do we smell? Oh, this one we haven't got a particularly solid answer. <laughs> so it's probably a combination of we're getting there shape theory. Yeah. So so kind of lock and key, and then a bit of quantum, vibrational quantum tunneling. Yeah, we may not need to go for quantum tunneling, but I think there's something to the vibration. You got excited, thing. though, didn't you? Yeah, I did a little bit. Tunneling. Yeah, yeah. Oh, electrons jumping. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classic Brooksy. Um, and then Such question... <laughs> yeah, but entirely accurate. <laughs> and then question two, why do we smell uh, so food and, and mating? Yeah. yeah, food and sex. Yeah. Classic. Tick, tick. Uh, and then question three, are there super smellers? No. There are show-offs, basically. <laughs> People are like, do you know what my thing is going to be? Talking about smells. <laughs> no better than anyone else. I just know lots of words. Describing yeah. words. I mean, you could probably argue that that's true of most things that people say they're good at. They've just practised it more. Quantum physics? Don't think so. Well, hang on. Are you saying that you're good at quantum physics? What does that mean? All right, no. I just studied it. Fine. Yeah, fine. It's not like it's, it's not, not a gift. Like a gift. <laughs> it's no. not a, a superpower. I, I was born thinking about quantum tunneling. <laughs> Science Ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producer was Max Chirality Sanderson, with sound design by Ivor Slayer Manley. The assistant producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. This episode featured Professor Stuart Firestein, Dr. Luca Turin, Professor Matthew Cobb, Professor Rachel Hertz and Professor Tim Jacob with extracts read by James Groom. <laughs>